This week on Monocle Reports, propaganda and the president. CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. The video circulated by the White House to justify the cancelling of that CNN reporter's press pass had been edited to depict something that did not happen. Was it an accident? Or is the Trump administration learning from the well-read playbook of a strongman leader? Also ahead, Monocle's soft power survey is in, and France is top of the heap. We've also got more from Inside Monocle's December-January issue, and we'll review director Luca Guadagnino's take on the Italian horror classic Suspiria. From Midori House in London, I'm Ben Ryland, and this is Monocle Reports. The new edition of Monocle magazine is out on newsstands this week. In addition to our soft power survey, you'll also find an interview with CNN's Christiane Amanpour, who warns that the job facing journalists is becoming more hazardous just about everywhere. The cancellation of journalist Jim Acosta's press pass at the White House certainly came as a shock to CNN. The network was back in court again this week after Acosta's access was once again threatened, despite an intervention by the courts. The episode has understandably provoked outrage and fanned the flames of anti-media sentiment that Donald Trump has made a pillar of his presidency. But there was another aspect to this that's potentially even more shocking. In an effort to bolster its reasoning for removing Acosta's access, the White House circulated a video of the journalist that appeared to show him acting aggressively towards a female intern. The video was fake. It had been edited to depict an incident that never occurred, and it was first shared by the conspiracy-peddling website Infowars. For context, the White House's source for this video was the same organization that promotes a belief that the Sandy Hook shooting, which killed 20 young children and six adults, was a left-wing hoax. The White House consciously perpetuating a demonstrably phony story should be a cause for alarm for everyone. For one journalist, however, watching this unfold from all the way over in Hungary, it felt remarkably familiar. The situation facing journalists in Hungary is bleak. Free press has all but ceased to exist, and there are fears that even those outlets that appear to be non-partisan or of the opposition are actually carefully controlled by the state. But it wasn't always like this. Daniel Nolan is a journalist in Budapest. There was a definite direction where you could see that there, Viktor Orban, who was the opposition leader at the time, was starting to scoop up certain media outlets. And looking back, there are certain tactics that he was employing, say, in the sort of mid-2000s, which I can identify as, as continuing now. For example, you know, a lot of people know about this, how George Soros has been a sort of the boat made the sort of public enemy number one. George Soros, in case you've forgotten, 
was one of the recipients of a recent spate of bombs that were mailed to various locations in the United States, including CNN. The billionaire philanthropist is also a constant target of outrage and conspiracy theories across the right-wing media due to his high-profile political donations to Democratic candidates. They were doing something similar with the Prime Minister at that time. So there were certain trends which you could see coming. I'm not sure anyone quite expected the extent of what's happened now, which is basically the situation is that the Orban government directly or indirectly control about 90% of the media in the country. The government delivers its message to the media via a weekly press conference fronted by members of the administration. A couple of ministers basically take questions from the press for an hour or so every Thursday. So I went along because I basically had evidence that that a government ministry was writing editorial directives which were being sent out to state media editors and so on. So I wanted to, to ask them about that. Well, um, he immediately tried to shut me down. This is Zoltan Kovacs, the international spokesman. And he called for order. He said there's an order in this room. And he said um, he threatened to set the parliamentary guards on me. I mean, he gave a series of, of reasons why he refused to answer my question. I mean, for example, he said the question wasn't phrased in Hungarian. But I mean, my Hungarian is quite good. I just he spoke to me in English. So I kind of. So automatic replied back to him in English. Then I started to ask the question in Hungarian, and that's when he shut me down. So there was, there was a series of, of excuses he tried to make. Daniel never did get to ask his question. In fact, the government turned on him, accusing Daniel of being rude and a partisan activist. But it's what happened next that makes this row particularly prescient. The government circulated a GIF animation of Daniel taking the microphone... However, the footage appeared to have been doctored to make him look more aggressive. I think that the GIF was about three, four, five times faster speed than, than I'd actually uh, taken the microphone at the time. So I don't think it was very convincing for anybody. Needless to say, when Daniel saw the incident involving Jim Acosta at the White House, the similarities weren't lost on him. <laughs> well, it was eerily familiar. Actually, I was at home at the time. I watched it with my parents and, um, and they just remarked, oh, right, oh, right, that looks a bit like what happened to you. Daniel Nolan there, speaking to us from Budapest. This is Monocle Reports. The latest issue of Monocle magazine is out now and it's our bumper December-January edition featuring our annual soft power survey. In a moment, Monocle's Thomas Lewis will examine the soft power of the small screen. But first, Tom Edwards guides us through this year's survey with our editor, Andrew Tuck, including how Emmanuel Macron's skill as a messenger helped France take the top spot. He's an extraordinary operator when it comes to soft power, whether that's giving Xi Jinping a a horse as a gift from the French cavalry to say, this is what we're about, this is how you make friendships, to the way he puts a spotlight on people doing good in his nation. So he knows when to 
thank somebody who's climbed up a wall and saved a child dangling from a balcony. He he knows when to thank an incredibly multiracial football squad who wins the World Cup. He's used all of those elements to burnish the image of France overseas. But he is also a believer in soft power and he's also a believer in that France can do good in the world and that French culture is something to be championed and to be celebrated at this point. And I wonder, to again reveal another of the top performing nations, Germany, still at number two, both France and Germany seem to be a bit more traditional in their wielding of soft power, how they wield that influence. Well, I think if we're staying with the government part of this and the diplomatic part of this, certainly many nations around the world are busy flogging their embassies and trying to raise cash for their diplomatic services, whereas you don't see that with France and Germany to the same extent. Of course, they're keen to run on a budget, but they're not offloading great buildings, places where they can showcase the trades and crafts of their nation. They're busy using them. And actually, they're both countries where, again, you know, Germany, because of its history, you know, it's not going to be shouting and bellicose about its desires for the world. But both countries are pretty good at that quiet diplomacy as well, of taking someone's ear and, and telling them what they think. And actually, even that, you know, we saw the extraordinary moments in the meetings between Macron and Trump. Even there, Macron was, you know, the guiding hand, the firm handshake. He may have said some things that have riled Trump since, but he certainly wasn't somebody out there to kind of go shouting about why France was better than everyone else. He wooed by taking Donald Trump and Melania to the Eiffel Tower and and taking them to the top to see Paris and show them his city and show them their food culture. That's how he thought you could win friends. And I think it's a very good and reliable format. Another monocle stalwart, Japan, of course, rounds out the top three. Japan is quite effective at promoting itself overseas, but not in a heavy-handed way. At times like this, when there's so much talk about putting up walls, building barriers, questioning trade relationships and all the rest of it, I guess all of our top three, and maybe we could talk a bit about Japan, demonstrate it's not just politically expedient to look to the wider world, but it makes financial sense, it makes cultural sense. There's all this other kind of capital you can tap into, and that's still as important as it ever was. For Japan, you They have an Olympic Games to prepare for. They're using that to lure in talent and architectural talent and all sorts of people to come to Japan. They have an amazing food culture that has travelled to every single nation in the world, often ended up in a fusion with local food. That's something that people can grasp about Japan, an entry point to the nation. The number of tourists there is rising and rising from all parts of the world. When people get there, they're hospitable. They know how to make people feel welcome in their country. They have so many tangible examples of craft, of design, of things being very Japanese when you get there. All of these things sell the country and it's safe and it's secure. Plus they're using their might as an industrial engine to build railways and power plants for neighbouring countries such as Vietnam. The caveat that you have to come to, though, is that when it comes down to it, they are not open in the sense of they kind of don't want you to go and live there. They don't want you to pitch up and go looking around for work unless it's in a very contained way. So the migration story, that openness to other cultures, is still a kind of an anomaly in many ways. You know, here's the most welcoming country but they want to keep their culture as it is. And and there is a, a nationalist element in Japan as well, but it doesn't spoil the story for the country. 
And Andrew, I guess just on that point about the freedom of movement of people, of labour, it seems to be a narrative that's universal, good and bad, there's both sides of it. Do you have to try and not allow that to cloud judgment? Because, you know, France, Germany, Japan, all those top three have wrestled with this problem in different ways. It's more immediate elsewhere. It is complicated. Well, I don't think that we're arguing that if you have open borders and let anybody come in, then you're a great country and you've got great soft power. And that if you have a migration policy and that you stick to it, you're a bad group of people and your power will collapse in the world. But I think it's how you deal with people to try to cross your borders and the narrative that you pack around it. So for example, Australia is a good example, a country that most people feel endeared to Aussies have a reputation, whether rightfully or wrongly, for being friendly, gregarious, outgoing, welcoming, have a beer, come to the barbecue. It's a stereotype, but it's one that kind of has been very effective for Australia. But the reality for many people who've been trying to reach the country by land, sea, by boat, is that they've ended up in places which don't seem much short of a detention camp, and their human rights have often been challenged in quite questionable ways. And that has stuck to Australia, even when they've tried to ameliorate their position when it comes down to it. Australia has a reputation of not being that nice. Now, it may be that they're legally correct and they've done all the right things, but actually for their reputation, it hasn't been good. And that has definitely dented their soft power. Many people say, Australia, super, super nice place, but... That sticks to you for a long time. Andrew, people will probably want to read more. Two things. Remind them. It's all in the uh, December-January issue, of course. And I'm sure you would welcome people, I don't know, dropping you a line personally and telling you what they think of the uh, of your selections, you and your team. Well, you can uh, certainly write to me if you think that, well, Ireland's in there, Austria's in there, but where? India's in there, but where? Have a look, see what you think. People always have very strong opinions about this. But yeah, the full survey is in the magazine, which is on newsstands in most major cities from this week. And we're giving a little bit of a sneak peek of some of it on uh, monocle.com as well. Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck speaking to Tom Edwards. This is Monocle Reports. I'm Ben Ryland. And today we're taking a look inside the latest issue of Monocle magazine, which includes our annual soft power survey. And as we just heard, soft power can come in all shapes and sizes, including sometimes on the small screen. Monocle's Toronto Bureau Chief Thomas Lewis explains. If childhood in Canada between the years of 1978 and the late 1990s had something close to its own national anthem, then this would surely be it. Those cheerful, sing-alongable lyrics still carry a near-lip-wobbling nostalgia for many Canadians across the country. And they are the words to the most famous song by the children's entertainers Sharon, Lois and Bram. For decades, Sharon Hampson, Bram Morrison and their late co-star Lois Lillianstein were the darlings of preschool broadcasting. Their first album, One Elephant, Deux Elephants, was re-released five times between 1978 and 2008, and The Elephant Show, which ran in its original iteration on television from 1984 to 1988, propelled the three to national stardom. 
The trio were among a slew of soft power ambassadors for Canada. They performed at the UN General Assembly as well as for the Clintons at the White House. Public parks and ice rinks, such as the Skinnamarink in Davisville, were named in their honour. In October, Sharon and Bram announced their retirement. While the news came as no surprise after 40 or so years in the business, it does prompt the question about the current state of Canadian children's TV production. Television and film production industries, more broadly speaking, is booming across Canada, in Ontario, British Columbia and Quebec particularly. But competition from platforms such as Netflix, as well as certain investment shortfalls, means that production of children's TV shows is not what it used to be. Nevertheless, Canadian creativity in the genre endures. Recent years have seen the rise of shows like Paw Patrol, in which a group of dogs safeguard the community. The plots and the visuals of such shows appears to travel well. Paw Patrol has seen meteoric success in Asia particularly. Well, as Sharon and Bram bow out from the limelight, Canada must nurture its flair for children's content once again and ensure that shrinking budgets don't bring about a long-term decline in what was once a rich and cheerful soft power asset. As Sharon and Bram bow out, Canada must be sure to nurture its flair for children's TV and ensure that shrinking budgets don't bring about a long-term decline in what was once a rich and ever-sunny soft power asset. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Thomas Lewis. This has been a Cambium production. Our thanks to Thomas Lewis in Toronto. This is Monocle Reports. The new issue of Monocle also includes our culture outlook for the holiday season with a few tips on what to watch at the cinema. Last week saw the long-awaited release of Suspiria, director Luca Guadagnino's take on the classic Italian horror film from 1977. It's his first film since the enormous success of last year's Call Me By Your Name, and it's definitely not your average scary movie. Okay, why don't we all break for ten minutes? You can't even be bothered to respect your lies. Miss Ivanova! No, 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 no. It's okay. Let's face this. Patricia is gone, Olga. We don't know where. In 1977, Italian filmmaker Dario Argento launched a 98-minute-long kaleidoscopic art horror trip upon unsuspecting cinema-goers. 
Suspiria was quite unlike the genre counterparts of its time. Brian De Palma's Carrie in 1976, William Friedkin's The Exorcist in 1973, or Richard Donner's The Omen, also in 1976. Among the many differences, while those films all had their roots planted firmly in our world, Argento's film transported its viewers to a place confusingly colourful, yet oddly terrifying. Officially, it's the German city of Freiburg, but the visual cues tell us we're somewhere else. Dripping with Art Nouveau set pieces and a colour palette that could have been taken from the swatches of Marilyn Monroe's Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, the first Suspiria was a visual spectacle, without the slightest hint of a plot. Remakes are a tricky business. Regardless of how adamantly a filmmaker might signal that their version stands independent of its predecessor, comparisons are inevitable, even if the similarities are largely limited to a shared title. In 2001, Alejandro Amenaba avoided such a fuss by opting for a new title. The Others, which is a very good ghost story, is a remake of The Innocence, a 1961 masterpiece from director Jack Clayton. There are clear differences between the two. Indeed, the remake takes several major plot deviations, but Amenabas' film was as much a remake as this new version of Suspiria. We demand originality from cinema, but when it comes wrapped in the packaging of a remake, originality can be easy to overlook. Luca Guadagnino's take on Suspiria begins in the bleak, rain-soaked Berlin of 1977, the year Argento's film was released, as Patricia, an apparently hysterical young woman, rushes to her therapist's office for an emergency session. She's convinced that a coven of witches are haunting her, watching her through the eyes of every face she sees. Her therapist is, naturally, unconvinced by her ramblings. Meanwhile, Susie, played by Dakota Johnson, a young American woman from Ohio, is the freshest arrival at the Marcos Dance Academy. I want to start work on a new piece, a piece about rebirths, the inevitable pull that they exert and our efforts to escape them. We learn it now, but Susie, you will improvise freely at its heart. I'm interested in your instincts here. The students and teachers are still feeling the absence of Patricia, a former student who recently fled the school and has vanished without a trace. The highly respected and feared dance instructor, Madame Blanc, a terrific Tilda Swinton in one of her multiple roles, dismisses concern among students for Patricia's well-being. She had strong political beliefs, they're told, and if she wants to spend her days filling petrol bottles in a basement, well, that's her choice. The real events of the German autumn in 1977 make intermittent appearances via news reports, glimpses of a kidnapping and the hijacking of a plane occasionally interrupt rising tensions. Shortly after a bomb explodes a few steps from the academy, a fellow student accuses the young American Susie of having little grasp of what's really happening in Berlin. Later, during a particularly frightening exchange, Another character is scolded for refusing to believe women 
when they report that something terrible is taking place. The events of this Suspiria might be from another world, but they're happening here. Whether we choose to notice the clues that reality gives us is of no consequence to the terrifying truth. Guadagnino is an audacious filmmaker. His version of Suspiria is scattered with real-life politics and institutional abuse. The seeds, or at least a symptom, of modern ignorance and complacency. His credentials as a designer also prove their worth. The film effortlessly blends scenes of grey bleakness with eye-popping eccentricity, without ever jarring the senses. Plenty of filmmakers make entertainment, but Guadagnino's business is art, the kind destined to provoke eye-rolls from some. But cinema for him is a visual language. Colours, textures, movements, everything around us is trying to tell us something. Whether we pay attention to what we see is the choice we make. Suspiria is out now in cinemas everywhere. For more news and analysis, tune in to Monocle24's live daily programming or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. This program was edited by Kenya Scarlett. I'm Ben Ryland. That's Monocle Reports. Goodbye. Goodbye.